Bones would then make their promised pilgrimage to Beckett's Bones. All across Europe, a pilgrimage in company with others was a life-defining event and one of the principal satisfactions of a well-tuned life. A man or woman went on pilgrimage in thanksgiving for a favour granted or to ask a member of the court of heaven for something greatly desired or as penance for sins committed. But even a penitential pilgrimage was full of incidental pleasures. The pilgrim joined with the other pilgrims for safety and companionship, and each pilgrimage offered its promise of adventure. One was, after all, travelling farther into the world than one had ever ventured before. Most medieval wayfarers had never gone beyond the nearest market town, so every pilgrim could look forward to marvellous sights and strange encounters. Whether you journeyed to a national shrine like Canterbury, to an international destination like Santiago de Compostela in Spain, or to the most exotic goal of all, the Holy Land itself, you would have enough stories to tell on your return to fill what remained of your span of days. Especially from your fellow pilgrims, mostly people previously unknown to you, you could expect to receive an unparalleled learning experience. For these were people from other places, places you had never seen, who had life stories quite unlike the ones you were familiar with. A crowd is as exciting as champagne to these lonely people who live in long glens among the mountains, John Millington Singh once wrote of rural Irish folk, who had managed, even in his day, to maintain many medieval customs and who still bore a medieval mindset. Not all medievals lived in long mountain glens, but most lived among what would seem to us but a handful of other humans. So though pilgrimage was a religious duty, it also became a glorious and sometimes picaresque experience. I invite you on a pilgrimage, dear reader. Come along with me and many others to places we have never seen before and to people we could otherwise never have expected to know. We are surely sundry folk, as Chaucer would have called us, and we shall meet sundry folk even more exotic than ourselves. By aventura, by happenstance, we have fallen into fellowship. In the prelude that follows, we must spend a little time in late antique Alexandria, for it was a place of cultural percolation that would have untold influence on the making of the Middle Ages. Then, in the introduction, we shall quickly navigate the intervening centuries from the death of antiquity to the budding of the high Middle Ages. Do not be troubled if all this seems far removed from our principal quest. By starting in late antiquity, and then by turning, however briefly, to the uncertain beginnings of the medieval period, we learn by contrast. How different are the seeds from the soil that nourished them. How splendid will be the flowers compared with the seeds. And like a hearty breakfast taken at the tabard, these early courses will stand us in good stead as we venture forth in chapter one to the solemn and merry mysteries that will constitute our chief employment. Prelude Alexandria, city of reason, the great confluence. The soul takes nothing with her into the other world but her education and culture. 
Plato. Alexandria was the most Greek of cities. Situated in the alluvial delta where the life-giving Nile meets the dolphin-torn Mediterranean, it had been commissioned by Alexander the Great as his very own civic apotheosis. And though the young world-beater did not live long enough to see even one of its buildings rise from the mud of the delta, his corpse was transported here, shunned by the obscurantist priests of Egyptian Memphis, who feared his restless spirit would bring them bad luck, and here did the body, at least, of Alexander find rest in the late 4th century B.C., within the massive mausoleum called Tosoma, Greek for the body. The city that materialized around the tomb was almost impossibly grand. It had not grown like most cities as an unplanned thicket of huddled quartier, dense with fetid air and insalubrious shadows. Rather, it was laid out in a reasonable pattern, not unlike such later cities as Paris and Washington, and it seemed to classicalize to embody the principle of rationality. The first thing one noticed on entering Alexandria by the Gate of the Sun, exclaimed one tourist of late antiquity, was the beauty of the city. A line of columns processed from one end of it to the other. Advancing along them, I came to the place that bears the name of Alexander, and there I could see the other half of the town, divided from the first half by the broad canopic way, which was equally beautiful. For just as the colonnades stretched out ahead of me, so did other colonnades now appear at right angles to them. Grids, right angles, generously proportioned boulevards radiating from dignified monuments, punctuating colonnades at regular intervals, expansive, mathematical, open to the bright sun, and all assuring the ancient visitor that here at last he had reached the harbour of balance and tranquillity, the architectural and social expression of logos, of thought itself. For the ancients, Alexandria, cultural successor to war-devastated Athens, became in the 3rd century BC the great city of the mind, and for all the untroubled urbanity of its polished surfaces, it buzzed noon and night with theory, disputation, and intellectual engagement. Its first ruler, Alexander's companion-in-arms, Ptolemy, Soter, or Saviour, as he styled himself, had not particularly meant to create such a cerebral centre. He meant only to consolidate and extend the power of his realm of Greek Africa, the rough third of Alexander's empire that had fallen to him, just as Greek Asia and Greek Europe had fallen to others among Alexander's generals. Ptolemy was, of course, hardly unaware of the status that accrued to him on account of his ownership of Alexander's body, as sainted a relic as the ancient world possessed. He had, in fact, kidnapped it during its funeral procession, and he knew perfectly well how much his power would be enhanced by the creation of a great urban stage set. Ptolemy Soter founded the Museon, parent of all subsequent museums, nerve centre of philosophy, mathematics, literature, and a dozen other scholarly pursuits. Within its vast domain was the multilingual library, containing, it was said, all the books that had ever been written. The original library, called The Mother, was much enlarged under Ptolemy Soter's son and heir, and was thereafter called The Daughter. 
The library was burned three times, first in 47 BC by Julius Caesar, who accidentally set fire to some storerooms in the course of a battle, then deliberately and more extensively by a Christian mob toward the end of the 4th century of our era, and finally in AD 642 by the forces of Caliph Omar. At its greatest extent, it may have contained considerably more than half a million separate texts, which astonishing abundance alone accounts for its legendary status throughout the ancient and early medieval world. Among the varied enterprises housed in the Museon was a faculty of engineering that made possible the Pharos, the lighthouse, which stood in the harbour on a limestone island and was one of the seven wonders of the world. It rose more than 400 feet into the sky, and its ground floor alone was divided into 300 separate workrooms and offices. To the imagination of contemporaries, wrote E. M. Forster, the Pharos became Alexandria, and Alexandria became the Pharos. Never in the history of architecture had a secular building been thus worshipped and taken on a spiritual life of its own. It beaconed to the imagination, not only to ships at sea, and long after its light was extinguished, memories of it glowed in the minds of men. There is even tantalizing, if fragmentary, evidence that the Pharos may have been topped by a telescope. If so, lenses were a Greek invention, lost well before the Pharos fell to ruin under the Arabs, and rediscovered in the 13th century of our era. The Ptolemies would rule safely and ruthlessly till Cleopatra VII, unable to secure the throne for Ptolemy XV, her son...